Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Dr. Phil Riken, in his commentary, recounts a fascinating historical account. During the Third Crusade around the 12th century, King Richard, the first of England, also known as the Lionheart, waged war against the Muslim armies under the command of Saladin. But while King Richard was fighting to regain Jerusalem, his brother Prince John was busily trying to crown himself the King of England. So Richard hurriedly made a treaty with Saladin and raced home to protect his royal prerogatives. But as he made his way across Europe, King Richard gets captured by Leopold V of Austria and is held for ransom equal to two or three times the amount of his kingdom's annual income. Everyone in England was forced to choose sides. And Prince John sneakily offered Leopold half as much money to keep Richard in prison for another couple of years so that he could have time to consolidate his powers in England. Meanwhile, Richard's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, tried and eventually succeeded in raising enough money to have her favorite son rescued and restored to his rightful throne. It was a conflict for the kingdom which Richard finally won. But while the throne was still in dispute, the people had to decide which man they wanted to be king and how much they would give to support his cause. Well, when it comes to the kingdom of God, we face a similar dilemma. Will we honor God's true and rightful king? Or will we attempt to seize the crown for ourselves or for the king of our own preferences? Which kingdom will you choose? The kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? The kingdom of earth or the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of the now or the kingdom of eternity? If you answer, of course, the kingdom of God, what would you sacrifice to see God's kingdom established and advanced through your life? What does it mean for you to be a citizen of the heavenly eternal kingdom? What does it mean for you? And what is God calling you specifically to serve the King of Kings? Today we are starting a new study through the books of First and Second Kings in our series, The King of Kings. We understand First and Second Kings to have originally been written as one continuous book, so we'll study them together. In the Kings, we see five main movements. So five sections. Chapters 1 through 11 talks about King Solomon's reign. Chapters 12 through 16, which talks about the divided kingdom. Chapter 17 through 2 Kings 10, kings and prophets, namely prophets Elijah and Elisha. And 2 Kings 11 through 17, the kings of Israel and Judah until exile. And chapters 18 through 25, the last kings of Judah until the Babylonian exile. And so covering each section, this series will be our fall and winter study for the next four to five years, perhaps less. And so look forward to studying these books together. Well, to give you some context, let me briefly give you a summary of First and Second Samuel, which precedes the kings and sets the stage for the religious and historical events of the kings. First Samuel begins with the prophet Samuel becoming the last judge of Israel, according to First Samuel 7, 6 and verses 15 and 17 as well as the first prophet of Israel, according to 1 Samuel 3.20 and Acts 
3, 24, and 13, 20. But the people of Israel demand a king, don't they? Because they no longer want judges to rule over them. And Prophet Samuel warns these people of the negative consequences of having human kings rather than looking to Yahweh and rejecting Him as their true and only king. But God grants Israel their desires anyways, with clear warnings, of course, of what's to come. And so Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel. Saul initially reigns successfully, but eventually he disobeys God and God's commands stupidly, leading God to reject his kingship. And so the prophet Samuel then is directed by God to anoint David, a shepherd boy, a musician, as the future king of Israel. And we see the rivalry between Saul and David intensify with David winning the favor of the people as well as the jealousy of Saul. Saul attempts to kill David while David refuses to harm Saul even though several opportunities provide him the chances. And 1 Samuel concludes with the death of Saul and his sons in a battle against the Philistines leading to David's ascent as king of Israel in Hebron. 2 Samuel continues the events of David's reign as king. David unites the northern and southern tribes of Israel and establishes Jerusalem as the capital city. David brings back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, solidifying the city's religious significance. And it's here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11-17, through 17, the Lord makes a covenant with David, which is a continuance of previous covenants God made with Abraham and Moses. When God declares, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Nevertheless, despite David's great military successes and devotion to God, David, we know, was not without flaws. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and orchestrates the murder of her husband, Uriah, who was in his own army. The prophet Nathan rebukes and confronts David. And David repents of his sins. But although David has shown grace and favor from the Lord and had received God's promise of an everlasting dynasty, David's sins are not without consequences as his family continues to face turmoil. By the end of 2 Samuel, we continue to see the consequences of David's sins and mishaps, which results in God sending a plague upon Israel. So David, realizing the consequences of his actions, repents again and pleads God for forgiveness and mercy by building an altar. And God graciously hears David's prayers and the plague on Israel is diverted. And so we come to 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 1 which biblical scholars agree is one of the most strangest openings in all of the books of the Bible. God's most beloved king David, a man after God's own heart is shown totally feeble and fragile in his final days on his deathbed. And that's the overarching tone of the king's Unlike its title, which should be about the pomp and glory of Israel's kings, the story of kings is actually a record of Israel's downfall. Although there's a bit of glory in the building of Solomon's temple in the earlier chapters, the kings actually ends with the temple being destroyed. Israel ravaged and exiled into Babylonian captivity. And Israel and all the watching world are wondering, what did it all mean? Was Israel's God not in fact in control of nature and history as the Mosaic religion claimed? Were there other more powerful gods in Babylon perhaps who had engineered the Babylonian victory over Israel? Had Yahweh been defeated? 
if the God of Moses did exist and was good and all-powerful, how was it that God's chosen city and temple are all destroyed? How was it that God's chosen royal line, the line of David, all but come to its end? Had Yahweh given up on Israel? Had God abandoned His promise to Abraham, Moses, and David? So the question of the kings that is in the back of our minds is, how will Yahweh keep His covenant? How will God keep His covenant, the promise that He made to David, that He will raise up an offspring from David to establish the throne of His kingdom forever? And our passage helps us toward answering that overarching question by asking, who is the king? Who is the true and promised king? So in answering that question from 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 11, I want to share with you four answers that our passage provides. Four answers to the question, who is the true king? Here's the outline so you know what's ahead. Point number one, David is the impotent and dying king. In verses 1 through 4, David is the impotent and dying king. Point number two, Adonijah is the self-exalted king. Self-exalted king. Point number three, Solomon is the chosen king. Verses 32 through 53. Solomon is the chosen king. And point number four, but is Solomon the obedient king? Is Solomon the obedient king from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11? Brothers and sisters, I pray through our study of the kings and through this message, we would be reminded that even when kings and kingdoms rise and fall, we would remember and cling to the word of the Lord. That it is only through the word of Yahweh can we as God's people be sustained and persevered in faith, hope, and love. I pray you would be encouraged and empowered anew that even when the foundations are being destroyed, the righteous of God would know and trust that the Lord is in his holy temple, that the Lord is on his heavenly throne. That we would know who is the true and righteous king, who is sovereign and in control over all, and that he is good and gracious toward his own now and forevermore. Amen? Dear guests and visitors, welcome. If you are here and you do not consider yourself a believer of Christ, a follower of Christ, we especially welcome you today. We pray that you would hear God's word and trust in Jesus Christ who died to forgive your sins and rose again to grant you new and eternal life. If you would repent, believe, and trust in him. So without further ado, let's turn now to his word found on page 279 of the Blue Bibles around you. And I want to encourage you, if you ever open up your Bibles and follow along and reference it often for the entire duration of my message, today would be a really good day to do so because we'll have to cover a lot and I'll be referencing the passage uh, many, many times for your encouragement and for your edification for his glory. So let's dive right in. Who is the true king? Point number one, David is the impotent and dying king from verses 1 through 4. Look with me to those verses. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shumanite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king, and attended to him. 
but the king knew her not. Brothers and sisters, the point of these verses are very clear. And the intention of the author of this book is very clear. David is not the promised king of Israel, whose reign would be established forever. David, yes, was among the greatest of earthly kings, arguably the greatest of all time, the goat king, if you will. However, look at his state. David is not who he once was. From boyhood, David performed countless heroic feats from the shepherd farm to the battlefields. He killed lions and bears to defend his father's flock and herds. He slew giants. He conquered kingdoms. He established a fortress for his people in Jerusalem. He sired a royal dynasty, fathering many sons to be the princes of Israel. But now the famous and beloved king was old and gray and weak. And what is left from his former greatness, all he could do, was to try to stay warm in his deathbed. But these verses, what does it tell us? He could not even do that. Although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. The use of a youth to restore vital warmth was an ancient medical practice. However, were David's servants merely trying to find any human to serve the king as a hot water bottle of sorts? We ought not to miss what they were trying to do, brothers and sisters. There is no question of their intention, which is why they conducted a Miss Israel pageant to find the most beautiful young woman in the whole nation of Israel to attend to the king and be of his service. Why was this necessary? According to one commentator, the situation seems charged with sexuality. The point is this, not even a stunning young virgin could warm David's blood. The end of verse 4 says, The king knew her not. They were not intimate. Or better yet, these verses are clearly showing David's sexual incapacity. It was showing that the once vigorous King David who lusted after Bathsheba and committed adultery and even murder to have her has suffered a loss of vitality and virility. David was impotent and weak and he was dying. David was about 70 years old at this point according to 2 Samuel 5.4. But his condition was as worse as it could be. You see, there's even a greater significance to David's physical decline. A moral and spiritual decline is clearly indicated by these introductory verses as well. You see, David's failure to name who should follow on the throne was one of David's greatest failures up to this point. How could David be so remiss, especially when he knew the covenant God had made regarding his offspring? Better yet, how could David come to a point where he became so careless about fulfilling God's covenant? How was he so apathetic to who would succeed his throne? Especially at a time when it was not clear whether the common ancient Near Eastern practice of succession by the firstborn was to apply in this case or not. You see, David's indecision, his inaction, even his irresponsibility is what is clearly portrayed in these verses which is what makes this introduction so curious and so strange that our hero King David is at such a low, which sets the tone for the entire book and the course of the history of Israel in terms of the trajectory of what is ahead in the rest of the Old Testament. David is the impotent king. David is the dying king. David is not the promised king. There is such lostness and sadness to this predicament, isn't there? The price of David's sin of adultery and murder were so high, he spends the rest of his life regretting it. 
In Psalm 51, David expresses his mental and spiritual torment as he pleaded the Lord's forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Eventually, David does receive the assurance that his soul would be delivered from the lowest of hell according to Psalm 86, 12-13. But this assurance could not restore the blessing that he had lost. Although David's life is spared, his sins have terrible consequences. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10-14, through 14, David is told, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And down in verse 14, God says, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And we see how the firstborn of David and Bathsheba dies as a consequence of their sin. Brothers and sisters, I pray these verses remind us of the author's intended implications. David's feeble decline is a sad reminder of our own frailty. We must also not miss the obvious lesson that David's aged and impotent state intends to teach us. Sin has terrible consequences. We experience a brokenness, weakness, inability, and sorrow. You see how the once mighty King David is confined to his bed, unable to get warm. His condition was more than just a sickness of the body, you see. It was a sickness of the soul. How about you, brothers and sisters, guests and visitors? What is your current physical and spiritual state? Are you, like David, unable to warm your body and mind, nor warm your heart? Because sin and sorrow has maimed you and constrained you incapable? Friend, has your anxieties and depression confined your body that you can't get out of bed? You are barely living because of the brokenness you are experiencing because you have no warmth in your heart. Well, I pray this message brings you hope. I pray this message gives you life. I pray this word gives you a second chance. I pray through this word the Spirit of God brings you new life. Because as you will see in a few verses below, how the word of God brings David life once again for one final time in his life. You see, in God's word, David is not ultimately without hope. In God's promise, David, even in his deathbed, has a purpose Although David himself is not the promised one who will sit on God's throne forever, there is one in whom David will experience full redemption, final vindication, and forever exaltation. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because we must learn the lessons that the kings intend to teach us. So let's look at the next example. Point number two, who is the king? These next verses comprise of the largest section of the passage. So this is the longest point. Uh, but point number two, Adonijah is the self-exalted king from verses 5 through 31. Take a look with me to verses 5 and 6. It says this, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. These verses are very straightforward, isn't it? But I almost missed it. 
until Brother Jarrell brought it up at CG very matter-of-factly. Thank you, brother. For a minute, I had some compassion on Adonijah, thinking that he did indeed have the right as the next son in line to be the next king, as his father was on his deathbed. What's wrong with Adonijah taking some initiative and claiming the throne for himself when a derelict dad was sick in bed? Well, textual clues confirms the point. Despite what justifiable entitlement Adonijah felt regarding his kingship, what the author of this book wants us to clearly get and not miss is Adonijah's pride. The next phrase in verse 5, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. The verb form of exalted used here is in the continuous action. In other words, Adonijah's self-exaltation was not simply a one-time occurrence. It was his disposition. His whole life was all about putting himself forward above others. And the use of the emphatic I, I will be king, confirms what Adonijah was all about, me, myself, and I. Now, anytime in scripture or anytime in life, anyone exalts themselves, they should be warned. Scripture says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall, Proverbs sixteen eighteen, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor, Proverbs 29, 23. You see, brothers and sisters, Adonijah is another example of the certainty of this biblical principle. Don't ever exalt yourself. You will be humbled. I will be king has been the root cause of the downfall of man ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, hasn't it? who sought to be gods unto themselves instead of trusting and depending on Yahweh. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously says in his sermon, man's greatest problem? Self. That's how Satan tries to bring havoc into the lives of people, especially believers. The devil primarily uses pride to refocus people off the things of the Lord. He says pride is probably the deadliest and the most subtle of all sins because it can assume many forms. In verse 5, we see one example of how Adonijah was so full of himself, his not-so-subtle ways can't fool anyone. Adonijah brings together an entourage. It says he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. If you want to seem big and important, you got to make it seem like you're all deep, right? So that's what he was doing. It's like those people nowadays who buy followers on social media, or worse yet, I just discovered these people. It happened to me a couple weeks ago. They follow you on social media, and once you follow them back, they unfollow you. <laughs> so weird. Anyways, that was a tangent, sorry. Verse 6 shows us a bit of insight into why Adonijah was so full of himself. What's the answer? Poor fathering. Poor parenting. Look at the first part of verse 6. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Whew. Did everyone catch it? In your study of the passage, how this verse just jumps right off the page? It draws our attention to it, doesn't it? What is this about? It seems like a random parenting lesson thrown in the middle of Israel's kingship history. But whenever the scriptures do this, there is a purpose to it, and we ought not to miss it. This verse shows us David had been an absentee father to Adonijah at least. Whether he was dealing with his own issues or fighting wars off somewhere far, it says his father David had never at any time, notice the dual emphasis there, displeased him, Adonijah, asking, why have you done thus and so? 
Adonijah was never questioned, never challenged, never corrected. Furthermore, it says he was also a very handsome man. Not just an ite-looking guy, a very handsome man. I'll just leave it there. So here's the perfect combination, isn't there? Or the perfect storm brewing. A prideful, arrogant son, never disciplined, never challenged, never corrected by his father. Extremely good-looking, extremely gifted. It says he was born next after Absalom. Absalom, who by the way, led a revolt against his father David. Adonijah was the next in line, in any normal case, the rightful heir to the throne. So why not Adonijah, saying to himself, thinking to himself, King me, I will be king. Simply Adonijah was rebellious and spoiled rotten. As one commentator rightly notes, Adonijah may well have enjoyed a happy childhood, but his father's lack of discipline eventually led the young man into treason. Parents, especially fathers, what can you learn from this lesson? Don't miss this special lesson in parenting. If you love your sons, don't spoil them. Love them by correcting them. Train them by disciplining them. And sons, if you are a son here this afternoon, do not dismiss your father's rebuke and correction. Learn from their feedback and rod of correction. It is absolutely essential that sons need a father's discipline lest you end up self-exalting. For those of us who lack such earthly fathers, no excuses. Our heavenly father is a father to the fatherless. Amen? He is our Abba who teaches us his ways and disciplines those he loves. Look to him. Submit to his authority. Be loved by his tender and patient care for you. You'll be fine. As believers, you are not an orphan. You are not fatherless. You are a son. You are a child of the living God. Amen? In the next verses, you will see a lot of repetitions, particularly regarding who was present and who was not present in Adonijah's crowning as king. Look at verses 7 and 8. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and with Abathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. You really need the context to understand what's going on, and I encourage you to read 2 Samuel soon when you get a chance this week. But the point is this. The men, Joab and Abathar, that Adonijah conferred with for support, were some of the most powerful leaders in Israel, although both of their careers had ended in disgrace. Joab was a commander of Israel's army for many years, and he served David as his right-hand man. Joab was a general who helped King David conquer Jerusalem, who suppressed every rebellion against his royal throne who protected his life by assassinating David's enemies. Unfortunately, Joab had also killed David's son, Absalom, during his revolt. And Joab was put out of royal favor and had diminished in his political influence. Abathar, the priest, also was making a power grab. He was one of King David's old associates. He was one who was with David from almost the beginning of his life. He was the son of a high priest, and he wasn't the high priest, but maybe he wanted to be. Ultimately, his conflict with another priest, Zadok, put him out of favor and was not promoted as the high priest. And so you see Joab and Abathar roll with Adonijah to help him rise to power, perhaps desires of self-exaltation themselves as well. Let me just insert a quick application here. Be careful who you roll with. Be careful who you side with and who you align with. 
Be careful, brothers and sisters, to quickly throw in your support for someone who is not God's choice. More than that, be careful of people who reek of self-exaltation and pride. Be allergic to them. Run from them. Scripture guarantees the certainty of their downfall. Verse 9 talks about a huge party Adonijah throws to rally his support. Look at verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside in Rogel. And he invited all his brothers and the king's sons and all the royal officials of Judah. Someone pointed out at early morning prayer that they discussed in their CG the irony of Adonijah having their pre-party by the serpent's stone. I think that's good insight. Anytime in scripture a serpent is mentioned, it's not a good sign. But here's something interesting. The fact that Nathan the prophet and Benaniah, one of king's mighty men, basically the military general, and Zadok the priest were not with Adonijah, nor were they invited, is repeated multiple times. These names are repeated at least seven or eight times in this passage over and over again together. Makes us think, what's the significance? Simply, Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the military general represented whom God had ordained to be the proper authority, to uphold the authority of the true and rightful king. And all three has to align to confirm God's authority, prophet, priest, and king. You notice how Adonijah had a priest, Abathar, and he had a former military chief, Joab. But what did they lack? What did they miss? He did not have with them the prophet. He didn't have someone who would rightly explain and declare the word of God and missed him. You'll see this, the theme of this entire book over and over again. It is the word of God that sustains and perseveres kings and kingdoms and a people. We see that it is the word of God, the promises of God, that God himself keeps, and we can be certain of that. In fact, by the author's intention to point out that Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, and Benaniah were not with Adonijah, reveals to us the fact that Adonijah did not submit himself to the right authority. And he knew the kingship he was attempting to usurp did not belong to him in the first place. Brothers and sisters, have you also felt the same temptation? The temptation to take what you wanted, when you wanted, instead of waiting for God to give it to you? When God made it clear, do not covet. That job is not yours. That lifestyle is not yours. That house, that car is not yours. That spouse is not yours. That child is not yours. That girlfriend or boyfriend is not yours. That fiancé is not yet yours. The person on the internet screen is not yours. Yet you crave it. You want it. And you will do all you can to get it. And you will rationalize every possible way you can to have what is not yours. To have what God did not ordain. No wonder we struggle so much in brokenness, in unfulfilled desires, in the consequences of our sins, in dissatisfaction, in discontentment, in regret, in insecurities, in lack of joy, in lack of spiritual power, in misery and sorrow. What does the Word of God say? What does the Word of God teach about the right way, the good way, the best way, the way to joy and happiness? Meditate on these verses. Write these verses down. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 5, 11. 
But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Brothers and sisters, it is not that God has not given you fullness of joy. It is that we have given it up. It is that we do not embrace it. We do not love it. We do not want it. A great resource I recommend when I don't desire God, How to Fight for Joy by John Piper. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be happy? Then ask yourself, is your joy in God? The Kings teaches us, you can have all the world, but if you lack God's word, if you disregard God's promises, be absent of God's truth and his word, you have no life. You have nothing but misery. And so we see God's divine intervention there in verses 11 through 12. Look at those verses. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come and let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. You see, Nathan, the prophet of God, a man set apart to declare the word of God, to speak the voice of God, rising up to set straight what would be wrong. What mercy and grace of God when a man of God stands up with the truth of God and rightly proclaims the word of God. Amen? Has God ever called you similarly to stand up for the truth of God's word? We may ask, what irony. Nathan the prophet who confronted David regarding Bathsheba about their sin of adultery. Here we have prophet Nathan and Bathsheba in a royal conspiracy to save the kingdom. Look at verses 13 and 14. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. How sure, how are we sure, listen, how are we sure that Nathan was not trying to secure his own position? Because in reality, Nathan, by bringing this up to the king, was actually putting his own life on the line. You'll see Nathan isn't quite sure if it was King David that actually authorized Adonijah's kingship, which he confirms at least twice in the following conversations. Bathsheba, on the other hand, actually had real reasons why she needed to right in the wrong situation. Her life and her son Solomon's life was on the line. And all these details confirms the fact of what is certain, what Adonijah had secretly feared, the reason why Solomon wasn't invited to his party. Adonijah was the self-exalted king. Solomon was God's chosen king, but we'll get more on that in the next point. The next verses 15 through 31 entails what happens as Nathan and Bathsheba attempts to right the wrong. Let me read these verses and make two brief comments about what these verses teaches us. So verses 15 through 31 says this. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shumanite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king and said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when the lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. 
And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance. And he has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then king David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord king David live forever. Two important details here. First, Nathan confirms David was clueless, unaware, and had not authorized Adonijah of his kingship. Secondly, David remembers the word of the Lord, the promise God had made to David in 1 Chronicles 22, verses 7 through 10, decades before when David desired to build God's temple. 1 Chronicles 22, 7 through 10 says this, David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days and he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Furthermore, 2 Samuel 12, 24 through 25 says this, David remembered when Solomon was born, the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, beloved of God, because of the Lord. By the way, if anybody's looking for a baby name, Jedidiah is a great name. You can call him Jedi for short. Anywho, loved of God. For anyone who may be wondering what's with all this family drama, the point is clear. The power struggle between Adonijah and Solomon ultimately came down to David, remembering the word of the Lord. David ultimately waking up from impotence and irresponsibility and weakness and apathy, a wasted life and a potentially what would have been a wasted legacy by the help of prophet Nathan, the proclaimer of God's word. David once more is revived to see the furtherance of God's kingdom established by remembering his word, hallelujah. Hence Bathsheba's rightful response, though David was dying, may my Lord King David live forever. Goodness, so much lessons to be learned here. Look at the example of Nathan's courage, standing up for God's word. Look at the example of Bathsheba's humility, enduring an awkward situation, hello, to walk into David's room where Abishag, the most beautiful woman in Israel, was attending to him. Look at the example of David, even in his weakness, even in his deathbed, rising up to establish God's word and advance God's kingdom. This is why we still today remember King David as the goat king of earth. By God's grace, he lived and died to honor God's word. Who is the king? Point number three, moving on quickly. Solomon is the chosen king from verses 32 through 53. 
The next section recounts how Solomon is established as the rightful king, as God's chosen king. That's why you see the repetition again, the prophet, priest, and king, and the right proper authorities or witnesses affirming Solomon's kingship. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the commander of the armies comes before the king in verse 32. They bring Solomon, the king's mule, and bring him down to Gihon. The inside joke there is that it's really close to where Adonijah and his entourage were celebrating there in verse 33. They blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon in verse 34. They sit Solomon on David's throne and appoint him ruler over Israel and over Judah in verse 35. They declare praises and prophecies to Solomon according to the promises of God in verses 36 and 37. And they anoint Solomon in verses 38 and 39. And the people rejoice with such great joy. It's as if the earth was split by their noise in verse 40. And all of this puts the right kind of fear, doesn't it? To the enemies of God's king. That's verses 41 through 48. Now look at verse 49. When God's king sits on the throne, the enemies scatter. 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each went his own way. It reminds us of Psalm 68, verses 1 through 3, which says, When God shall arise, his enemies will be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. The smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Hmm. Does this remind you of anything? Do these verses foreshadow anyone? The next verses 50 through 53 show Adonijah's expected cowardice in response to Solomon's kingship. Verse 50 says, And Adonijah feared Solomon. And he seeks refuge and protection at the horns of the altar. Adonijah requests that Solomon spares his life. Up to this point, we have not heard at all from Solomon. Everything done regarding Solomon's kingship is by those around him. And we see King Solomon's first act in verse 52. Solomon speaks for the first time in this chapter. Solomon grants Adonijah mercy. He grants him house arrest if he proves himself to be a worthy man. But we will see Adonijah's greed and self-exaltation does not stop. We will learn of his fate in the coming chapters. The question remains, as I'm drawing to a close, the question remains, however, although Solomon is the chosen king, is Solomon the king? Is Solomon the true and promised king? It's still too early for us to know well, for us to learn of the answer more closely, fourth and final point, but is Solomon the obedient king? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11 can be divided into two sections. They are David's final instructions to his son Solomon as Solomon takes up David's throne in fulfillment of God's word and promise and in David's final act as king to continue the establishment of God's covenant. I don't want us to miss this, okay? So listen carefully, I'm almost done. Verses 47 through 48 where David himself was so overjoyed by Solomon being established as king that the king himself bowed himself on the bed in worship saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day with my own eyes seeing it. I want you to get the point. David wasn't able to get up out of bed because of a hot young virgin. But worshiping God for his promises gets him up out of bed, lifting up his hand in worship to God. That's why we love David, isn't it? He is a man after God's heart, to the end. When I get old and frail, I want to end up like David, don't you? Worshiping him to the end. Now verses 1 through 4 are David's spiritual instructions to Solomon. 
And verses 5 through 9 are David's political instructions. We're going, to, we're going to talk about verses 5 through 9 next sermon, so I don't want to talk about that too much. But pay attention to David's dying words to his son. Verses 2 and 3, look at it there. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. David says, being strong and showing yourself a man isn't benching 300 pounds or squatting 400 pounds. It isn't winning wars or slaying thousands. It isn't defeating giants. It's to keep the word of the Lord your God. David expresses God's word in seven different ways. The charge of the Lord, his ways, his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, and the law. Because only in keeping it, Solomon may prosper in all that he does. And wherever he turns, the Lord may keep his covenant, according to verse 4. Listen, brothers and sisters, Solomon is God's chosen king. But as we read of Solomon's reign, we will also see that Solomon is a very confusing king. I'll save the details of why for the next messages in our series. But I think the message of kings is this. Of all the kings of Israel and of all the kings of the earth, not one is the obedient king. Hence, no one else is the true king, the promised covenant king and the forever king. That is, save Jesus Christ, the Messiah king. Did you notice the undertones and the subtle whispers of his name all throughout the passage? We will hear it even more clearly in the following pages of the kings, who exactly is the king of kings. While David is the impotent dying king, Jesus Christ is the omnipotent, never-dying, ever-living king. While Adonijah is the self-exalting king who made himself king, Jesus Christ is the humble king who emptied himself and laid down his glory and gave himself up on the cross as the lowliest of men for our sins. He became, he became sin who knew no sin on our behalf. While Solomon was the chosen king and the beloved of God the Father, and while the prophet, priest, and king were united for him, and the mule he rode incited, long live the king, and while they prophesied of his throne to be greater than David, while he was anointed, while they trumpeted, and the earth split by his crowning in jubilant rejoicing, the fearful scattering bestowed on his enemies at his enthroning, it all echoes of the greater Solomon to come, as according to Matthew twelve forty-two, when Jesus himself declared, Something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is God's full and final word. Jesus is the true and ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And look at verse 11 through 12 as we finish, which says, And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years, and he reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David's father, and his kingdom was firmly established. You don't want to look too much into numerology, I get it. But what do the numbers 40, 7, and 33 bring to mind for you? 40 is a significant number representing the years of Israel's wilderness wanderings. And also the number of days Jesus fasted in correspondence to those years in the wilderness. Jesus is the new Exodus. Jesus is the better Moses, the greater deliverer. 7 is the number of days it took God to create the world and the day God rested. Well, Hebrews 10 speaks of Jesus as our final Sabbath rest. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Alpha and the Omega, our complete and certain salvation. 33 is the number of years Jesus lived and ministered on earth as man. 
It's the year Jesus fulfilled in full obedience to God's word, fulfilling all of God's prophecies and promises of forgiveness and redemption offered to wretched sinners like you and me. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. Jesus died the death that we should have died. Jesus suffered the punishment that we would have suffered in eternal hell, all because Jesus was faithful and able to keep all of God's word for us, for his glory, for his kingdom. Jesus is the obedient king. Jesus is the king of kings. Guests and visitors, if you are here and you know yourself to not be a Christian, look to Jesus, the only worthy king. He is faithful and merciful to forgive you and cleanse you of all your sin. His word is able to give you new life and eternal life. If you would repent, turn from trusting in the things of this world and from yourself. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. And trust him with your whole life today and tomorrow and forevermore. Brothers and sisters of NCBC, I pray that you will not miss the emphasis of our passage. The word of the Lord endures forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, says the Lord. Let me conclude with Dr. Phil Riken's words to challenge and encourage you. God's word puts everything in proper perspective. The Bible teaches a man to join his physical strength to patience and gentleness so that rather than sticking out in selfish anger, he uses his power to protect the weak. The Bible teaches a man to bring his sexual desires under control of the Holy Spirit rather than satisfying his own lusts. He gives his whole body and his whole heart to one woman for a lifetime so that God can make a family. In short, the Bible teaches a man to serve God in his daily calling so that his work brings honor to Jesus Christ instead of himself and so that his wealth can advance the kingdom of God rather than being used for his own foolish pleasures. The best and only way to avoid wasting your life is to base everything, surrender everything, give all and hold nothing back, stake everything on the word of God. This is the message of the kings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that sustains wretched sinners, that perseveres wretched sinners, that redeems wretched sinners for a thousand generations unto eternity. Father, if there's anyone who does not know you here, who does not know your word, having heard the word, help them to respond in repentance and faith. Gift them the repentance and faith so that they may turn to you and look to you and call upon you to be saved. Father, I do pray for my brothers and sisters of New Covenant Baptist here in this room. If for whatever reason they have forgotten your word, to cherish your word, to treasure your word, I pray that this word would wake them up to seek you and follow you wholeheartedly and not partially for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.